Well, good morning again, and we are excited to open up the Word today. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here in Maranatha, and I'm excited because it is a blessing to have the Word, but it's an even greater blessing for us to get to open it alongside one another here this morning. So turn to Genesis chapter 15. Um, That's where we will be today. Uh, If you didn't notice, the Christmas season has already started. If the end of Thanksgiving didn't already show you that, the frost this morning probably did, as it did for me with a very rude awakening today. And um, the Christmas season means that we're starting our Advent series here at Maranatha. And the, the purpose for the Advent series is not merely for us to just read the Christmas story, fill ourselves with like warm and fuzzy holiday feelings, and then to go about our merry way into the new year. The purpose of the Advent series is for us, one, to look back and celebrate what we have already seen in Christ's incarnation in his first coming, while at the same time we are hoping to generate a greater longing in our hearts for his soon return. Advent is not merely about us looking back and feeling good, but it's also about looking forward and looking forward to the promise of what is to come. So that's what we're trying to accomplish here as we dig into an Advent series. And you might notice that this series that we're in uh, this year is going to be different from many typical Advent series. We're not going to read tons of texts about shepherds and Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph, although those will be in there. I mean, you might have noticed that I asked you to turn to Genesis chapter 15, which talks about Abram, and not like Luke chapter 2, which talks about shepherds and angels. So probably already off in a different direction than you might have expected, which is fine. The reason that we're spending the next four weeks in these Old Testament passages is because we want to have a better understanding of the fact that God's story of salvation did not start, or rather restart at halftime with Jesus arriving on the scene. It wasn't um, a reboot. It wasn't a start over because things had gotten wrong. And rather, when Jesus came on the scene, it wasn't the beginning of something new. It was the culmination of ages of promises and prophets and prophecies and pictures coming to their glorious head in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to understand when we go into this series. For we look at Jesus as the promise, the prophet, the priest, and the king over these next Four weeks, And the reason we picked out those four topics, three of those prophet, priest, and king are three of these offices that in, in theological terms, we talk about offices that Jesus came and fulfilled. They were there in the Old Testament, and then Jesus came and fulfilled them. The reason that we picked these four is because we want to have a better understanding of what Jesus accomplished when he came. We don't want it to be vague. We want to understand in greater purpose through these Old Testament types and shadows and pictures of Jesus, we want to have a clearer picture of Jesus, who he is, and what he accomplished by arriving, and what he will accomplish when he comes again. So that's why we chose uh, the topics that we did. That's why we'll be spending so much time in the Old Testament. And today we're focused on Jesus being the eternal promise kept in the eternal promise keeper, the eternal promise kept. And we'll start by reading in Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1. If you're able, please stand with us out of reverence for God's word as we read 1 through 6 together. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, 
you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Father, we thank you that we can come before you and open your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be working through these very words that he inspired in our own hearts and our own minds to awaken us to the glory that is held in these words. Lord, we pray that you would sharpen us, shape us, change us to look more like Jesus Christ who has come and saved us. And we give thanks in his name this morning as his people. Amen. Amen. So you might notice verses 1 through 6 that Abram seems to have a little bit of frustration and confusion in his voice. I mean, he starts off talking to God by saying, Behold, you have given me no offspring. I continue childless. You can hear maybe a bit of confusion and maybe some angst and frustration in his voice because this isn't the first time that God has come to Abram. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 12, just a page maybe in your Bible at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 12, this is when God first calls Abram and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the first time that, that Abram heard the voice of God. And now it's probably been at least 10 years from those words in chapter 12 to these words in chapter 15. And if you and I were given a promise, especially a promise as great as that one and as huge as that one, then I think that if we went 10 years without seeing any fruition of that promise, specifically the cornerstone of that promise being offspring, the most important part of that promise, if we went 10 years on a promise and we saw nothing, we would also be frustrated, confused, and maybe a little angry. Maybe, maybe wondering a little bit if that was a dream, if, that really, if God really meant it, if God's really going to accomplish something that he said he would do. So we can understand that Abram is in the midst of a little bit of confusion here, and yet at the words of God, it says that Abram believed him and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice that God counted it to Abram as righteousness. There's lots of he's and him's in this whole passage, so we got to keep the pronouns straight as we go through it. But God counted it to Abram as righteousness. It wasn't earned by Abram as righteousness. It wasn't earned. It was given to him as righteousness on the basis of faith, because God has always been in the means of working in his people and on his people's behalf by grace through faith. And if you think I'm, wor- I'm looking too far into that word counted or credited, then I'll, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4, because in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaks on this very passage that we have before us today. And he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And so Paul is saying that even though Abram had faith, that faith was nothing that merited God's grace in Abram's life. That faith is merely the vehicle by which God pours his grace into Abram's life, but it does not earn him anything with God. See, God has never relied on his people's works in order to save them. God has never relied on his people's works in order to save him. Not once, not for Abram, not for you, not for me. Praise God. It is always grace, grace, and more grace. And God actually chooses to show Abram this, this grace by way of a covenant. He uses a covenant in order to show him that this is grace. Look in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 15. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. See, for us, as we read that, pa- that part of the passage, we might think that it, it's kind of an unusual progression of the story. Because for us, if, somebody, if we ask somebody, how do I know you'll keep your word? And he said, go and bring me a small petting zoo, or go and bring me like three animals and some birds, we'd be like, okay, this guy's not going to keep his promise at all because he's crazy. But in reality, Abram would have seen what's about to take place. Abram would have been familiar with what a covenant was. And for us, we might sit back and wonder, what is a covenant and why does it require such a, a gruesome setting to take place? Why does it require all this death in order for a covenant to happen? Because a covenant is not just a promise. It's not just a contract. It's not something like you're signing for your mortgage and you just uh, have, to, you have to put down you know, five animals and three birds. It's not that. It's even more solemn than that, rather. A covenant is the most solemn oath we can think about. These animals are not merely collateral. These animals are not merely decoration. The animals are brought here because they are a picture of the seriousness of the covenant. The animals are torn in two because the people who go into a covenant are saying that if they break their word, the other person has a right to end their life just like they ended the lives of the animals. That's what the animals are a picture of. They are a reminder to the people entering into the covenant how deadly serious this promise is. And normally those covenants are Covenants are often made between a greater party and a lesser party, one with more power and less power. If you think about a king in the olden days, whenever they would conquer a, a new kingdom, that conquered king would have to um, come in to a covenant with the king that conquered them. He would be the one then, the lesser powerful king, would then walk through these animals because he's trying to demonstrate his loyalty to the new king. So the lesser party would always be the one taking the covenant upon themselves. That is what they would do. Most of the time, most of the time, the more powerful one wouldn't walk through the animals at all because they're not the ones trying to prove anything, right? So that is what a covenant normally is. So Abram would have started to see that a covenant is taking place and he probably is getting ready 
to walk through the animals whenever God says, go. But instead, the story takes a bit, another right-hand turn, I would say. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. At, at some point in these verses, probably right around verse 14 or verse 13, rather, Abram might have wondered if he made a mistake by asking for proof, because all of a sudden the promise that God gave to him about his offspring is not as pleasant as it was a few seconds ago. Right Before this, Abram's just heard it's going to be a great nation, you're going to have tons of offspring, you'll be powerful, and then all of a sudden, God says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land and servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. And Abram is probably wondering what in the world happened. And he's probably regretting that he asked so many questions, maybe for a moment here. But thankfully, God says in verse 14, he will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and that they will come out with great possessions, that he will comfort Abram, be with him, send him to his fathers at a good old age, and that they will come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And these verses might not seem all that comforting, but honestly, it's amazing to me that God promises to Abram about his descendants that Abram doesn't even have descendants yet, right? He isn't even Abraham yet. He's still Abram. And yet God promises him that his offspring that he doesn't even have yet are going to be servants for 400 years, that they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. That is not a lot of good news right away. But one thing that I think is actually encouraging in this section is that we can know that God's plan and purpose are not derailed or delayed for a minute by any amount of evil and suffering. Not natural evil, not human evil. There's not a single thing that can derail or delay God's plan. As the one who decreed all things, he knows exactly how long until he will put an end to the suffering of his people. He knows exactly how long he's going to allow the Amorites' evil to continue. I mean, he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the Amorites definitely don't get to decide when their evil is complete. God gets to make that decision. He knows when it will be cut off. And so God knows the exact suffering of his people. He knows exactly how long until he will put an end to it and bring them back. And something I thought about as I, as I think about us here in 2020 and we read these words, God knows the exact end for every single pandemic sickness, and suffering. He knows the exact end of every pandemic, sickness, disease, and suffering. God knows the exact end for every wicked ruler, every injustice, every tyranny, and every ounce of oppression. And God knows the exact suffering that you and I will face in our personal lives. He knows the exact deliverance he will bring out of it. 
He knows exactly when it will happen. He knows exactly how it will happen. And he knows exactly the, fruit, the eternal and beautiful, wonderful fruit that will come out of that suffering. God knows every piece of it. And just as God can prophesy this future for Abram's descendants, God can look ahead and say with exact certainty all the suffering that they will, they will experience and also all the deliverance they will experience. So can you and I this morning, we can sit here and say that our God knows our suffering and he knows its end and he knows the glory that is on the other end. And that's what we can hang on to, even though each of our suffering may be a little different, even though the suffering maybe of this year has tried on each of us a little differently, whether it's our jobs or it's our health or it's our family's health, it doesn't matter what happened this year. It doesn't matter what happened in our whole lives. Even though none of our suffering will be identical, our hope, our certainty in God is identical and it is constant. It is always the same. And God shows this promise as faithful to Abram, finally, by, by cutting this covenant with him. Look in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. We might wonder at first why a smoking fire pot and why a torch. I think one thing we could speculate about it all day, but one thing we would know for certain is that these are the same signs that God used when he's leading the Israelites through the wilderness. So we know this is God going through the animals. We know that's what it is. And it's amazing to me when we think about who passes through the animals. As I said, normally the lesser, the lower, the less powerful is the one that goes through the animals. And doesn't it, doesn't it amaze us? Shouldn't it amaze us that God, instead, the greater being, the greater king, the greatest king, is the one who chooses to pass through the animals while Abraham, Abram rather, is out cold? Isn't that amazing to us that God has a right to put this covenant on Abram, but he doesn't. He puts it on himself. And God puts other covenants. At times, he puts restrictions in some of the particular covenants of the Old Testament. He puts those in responsibilities on his people. But this covenant, this promise that has eternal and cosmic significance for the redemption of all people, this covenant is only the responsibility of God. Is only the responsibility of God from beginning to end. He puts it on his own shoulders. And that means this is an unconditional promise. This is a completely unconditional promise. The one who passes through the animals is the one taking responsibility to carry out the covenant. And Abram is nowhere to be seen. He is out cold again, asleep. And God is the one saying that this is completely dependent on me. It is completely dependent on me, God says to Abram. And this is one of the amazing things. This is where we see Jesus so clearly in this passage. If we turn to Galatians chapter 3, we will look and see the answer to this question that we ought to ask ourselves, which is, who is God ultimately talking about? Is he talking about land? Is he talking really just about Abram's kids or maybe his grandkids? Or is God talking about something more. Galatians 
chapter 3, starting in verse 6, or rather verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So who is God ultimately talking about? Well, in one aspect, God is ultimately talking about you and I, those of faith, the children of Abraham. Those are some of the ultimate offspring that God is talking about. But also, God is amazing because at the same time, He is speaking about Jesus Christ. It says this in verse 16 of Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but offspring referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's who we see in such clear picture when we think about these promises. We see Jesus Christ, the redemption that he ultimately brings. In the shadow of the smoking fire pot and the torch making its way through the animals, what we see is that God is saying that I should cease to be God if I ever go back on this promise. If I ever change my mind, if I ever fail to, to bring you what I promised you, if I ever fail to make you a great nation, if I ever fail to bring you offspring, if I ever fail to bring a redeemer, I should cease to be God. And what's amazing is that God then sends Jesus Christ incarnate into the world at Christmas to fulfill this covenant. That's what we see in Genesis 15. Even more amazingly, Jesus Christ comes into human history and he comes in and fulfills this covenant by dying. Jesus comes and fulfills this covenant not only by living faithfully, but by dying obediently. And he takes upon himself the punishment of a broken covenant, even though he keeps it perfectly and we're the ones that break it. Jesus comes and just like the animals, is torn in two on the cross so that he can fulfill this covenant, this promise, starting in Genesis chapter 3, in the aftermath of the first sin, starting in Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, and 17, and on and on. Jesus comes and fulfills this all by his death on the cross, his dying and his rising again. See, his blood is the true blood that this covenant is founded on. It's not founded on the birds or the rams that we see in this picture. It is founded in the blood of the true lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus was torn in two that we might never be torn. He was torn that Abram would not have to be torn. He was torn that Abram's offspring would not be torn. He was torn again that you and I would not have to be torn. Through Jesus, we see all these promises to Abram coming to an amazing fruition. Genesis chapter 12, when God promises that he will bless all the nations of the earth. Galatians 3 tells us Jesus is how that happens. And in in Genesis 15, we see how Jesus secures an offspring more numerous than the stars of the sky. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, an offspring of Abraham, one man. How? Because of Jesus Christ. We see how the promise of redemption and grace is an everlasting covenant. In Genesis chapter 17, you can read through that this week. 
about God giving Abram the covenant of circumcision, in there he says he will establish an eternal covenant with Abram's offspring. And that is so true in Jesus Christ. And amazingly, God makes this covenant with us through Jesus Christ. And we become the people of this promise. This is what Jesus came to do. When you think about the child in the manger as we go into the Christmas season, when you think about the child being born in the manger, think about all the decades and ages and hundreds of years of promise, of longing, of striving for these Old Testament people of God waiting for a Redeemer to come. That's what Jesus comes and brings all of these promises to their long-appointed end. And he brings them to a more glorious end than Abram could have ever imagined. Just a few things before we close our time together this morning. A few things that again, here in 2020, stuck out in my mind as I was reading through this passage. First, 2 Corinthians 1.20. God is the perfect promise keeper, and I have this verse memorized in the New King James, so that's what we'll hear it in uh, this morning. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. All the promises of God in him, Christ, meaning in Christ are yes, and in Christ amen. I mean, have we ever stopped to think about the fact that God is the perfect promise-keeping God? Have we ever stopped and thought about the promises of God? When I, I think, um, a, a little, I didn't share this in the first service, so you guys get a bonus section here. Um, I think about in the book Pilgrim's Pro- Progress, there's a, there's a point in the story where Pilgrim is on his journey and he's stuck in what they call the swamp of despond. He's completely stuck. He's sinking into the mud. And it's a picture of us in our Christian lives as we get weighed down with all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our brokenness, all of our depression, every weight that, that hinders us. And the only thing that brings him out of it is that his friend gives him the promises of God. And he says, look to these. And so this morning, I just wanted to think about a few of these promises that we have. God has promised to be your father. God has promised to adopt you as his own child. God has promised to be your provider. God has promised to be your friend. God has promised to be your redeemer and your savior. God has promised to be your very present help in times of trouble. God has promised that his eyes are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Praise God. Our God has promised that the wicked will be cut off, but that the righteous will dwell in safety. God has promised that every ounce of our sin can be removed as far as the east is from the west through Jesus Christ. And God has promised and demonstrated that he would not spare his own son and send him into this world to live a perfect life, to be born in a manger, live a perfect life, to die for us wicked sinners. He wouldn't spare his own son to die so that we would be made right with him, that we could be brought back to God. And finally, and thankfully, and most gloriously, God has promised that Jesus Christ, through this eternal promise of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, he will come again. 
God has promised that every single ounce of oppression and tyranny and affliction will cease. He has promised that every piece of sin will be taken away, cast away completely forever. He has promised that every tear we have ever shed or will ever shed will be wiped away personally by him. That is a lot of promises, and there is more and more, and each of them are yes and amen in Jesus. Each promise are yes and amen. Amen. That is what we hold on to right now. I do not care where we are or what is going on. We have each and every promise, each of them yes and amen. So God is not only the perfect promise-keeping God, but he is also the perfect provider for his people. I think back again to those verses in 13 through 16 when God is prophesying the affliction that his people will go through. And I think about this amazing fact that just as God can prophesy all of that captivity, all that affliction, and then he can bring it to pass, and on the other side, just as he promised, he will bring them out with great possessions, and and just as he can accomplish that, so you and I right now, no matter where we are, we can trust that God is the perfect provider for exactly where we are. We can trust that today. And no matter how high the walls may feel, and no matter how strong the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people or of God's church, no matter how strong they appear, they are nothing before the perfect provider. Lastly, God is a gracious God to make his promises and he is faithful to fulfill them. Abram did not earn this promise from God. God came to Abram when he was living in idolatry amongst a whole people that lived in idolatry. There was nothing about Abram that was righteous. God came to him, called him out, just like for you and I, he comes to us, not unlike Abram, when we are out cold, and he brings us out of that. And he brings us out of it by grace, through faith. So Abram is, a, is, a, is receiving this promise by grace, and you and I today, we receive this promise by grace, not an ounce of our works in it, which is very good news, because we know then that we are secure in the grip of Jesus Christ. We are secure in his grace. And because of this good news, church, we can stop. We can stop living as slaves to sin. We can stop living as slaves to shame. We can stop living in fear enslaved to death. Because of these, we can stop. And instead, you and I can live as slaves to Jesus Christ. We can live as slaves to righteousness. And you and I can live as heirs of this promise, as heirs of eternal life. That's where we find ourselves today. Heirs of the promise. Heirs of the eternal promise because of Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Father, you are eternally good. Father, you are eternally great. And we are amazed at the fact that you would bring this covenant upon yourself. We are amazed at the fact that you are so gracious to us. 
We thank you for sending Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can trust you in the midst of all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our brokenness. God, you have come, you have taken it all away in Christ, and we give thanks that you are now our Father, Redeemer, and Friend. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out of this reality and not out of a slave to sin or to shame, but set us free from that, Father. Help us to live as heirs of the promise. Amen. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.